Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsuit Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Hello, everyone. This is not the beginning of the show we originally recorded. We recorded an entire episode. And then Donald Trump held a press conference in which he promised to send active duty military into American cities to enforce, quote unquote, law and order um, right before he used tear gas and mounted police officers to clear Lafayette Park so he could walk to St. John's Church, hold up a Bible and take some pictures. So we felt it was important to come back and record more. It is 8.36 p.m. Eastern Time on Monday night, and we both fear what will happen between now and when this episode releases in the morning and desperately hope that there isn't something that has eclipsed the significance of the moment that we just witnessed. We both had the same reaction initially, which was he did all of this because he does not like reading headlines about himself in a bunker. He does not like Mm -hmm. the weakness that was projected, and he decided to come out in what 
he would define as a show of strength. Well, and this followed up and by all accounts, terrible phone call with governors of the United States in which he basically berated them and told them they were jerks. And if they didn't get control, he would come in there. So if anybody was holding their breath, which I sincerely doubt anyone was, that he was going to show up and lead with compassion and reconciliation, then um, any of those hopes have been very quickly dashed. Yeah, he made a gesture toward separation of the peaceful protesters from the chaos opportunists in American cities. But the elevation of a militaristic approach to law enforcement that dominated this speech and his use of the actual word dominate as it relates to a law enforcement presence on American streets would indicate to me that he has, in fact, missed the point of these protests. You know, I don't spend a lot of my time quoting George Will, never have, but he wrote a piece and this line particularly stuck out to me, which is, there is no such thing as rock bottom, so assume that the worst is yet to come when it comes to Donald Trump, and I think that's right. And you know what else? I am furious that... We recorded a show about the anguish of America across the United States over the death of George Floyd and the death of Breonna Taylor and the death of Ahmed Arbery and the inequality in our streets and the unequal effects of the pandemic and how we push ourselves to face this, how we all rise to the occasion of this particular moment to begin to dismantle this system of oppression that has taken too many lives and dreams and breaths. And here we are at the top of the show recording again, talking about this disaster of a president. It makes me so angry. And yet, I don't know what else we have to do. I mean, for better or for worse, He's not going to lead. I'm desperately afraid no one's going to stop him. And so we have to find a way to protect ourselves and survive this man until November. I don't, I mean, he is a threat. And I don't know what else to do because there is no peaceful protest When you stand up and preach about law and order and Second Amendment and you clear peaceful protesters with tear gas to get a photo op like they can't coexist. You are purposefully escalating everything everywhere. And it's so infuriating. Yeah. What do you do when the American president wants a civil war? I don't know. I I was walking around my neighborhood with my kids after dinner tonight, thinking about what I had just witnessed via my phone. I was reading his remarks. Um, I did go back and watch them later, but I don't want the sound on my phone when he speaks when my children are around, because that is the reality of this presidency. And we were walking around my neighborhood, and it's beautiful evening Mm -hmm. and Ellen was like running ahead of us just jabbering away 
and the unfairness of that and the the knowledge that we were out after curfew for most places and that mm-hmm. we're so insulated from it. So when we say we have to find a way to protect ourselves and survive him, I'm so keenly aware that that is not my family. My family will be just fine until this is over. And I am so keenly aware that so many other people will not be. And I don't know what to do about that. Honestly, I don't know. I am at a complete loss for what happens when the president of the United States says, I'm going to send the army into the states and into the cities. I am going to think of people in this country with whom I disagree as terrorists and treat them accordingly. I don't know what to do when our members of Congress are just missing in action on this entire situation. Where are our senators right this very minute reacting to this debacle? And how are our military leaders to process the information that they just heard? Everything going on here is completely unacceptable. It's un-American. If this were happening in another country, our Secretary of State would be on the television condemning it right this minute. And it makes me sick. And it makes me sick that I feel so powerless to do anything and protected in my powerlessness. I'm just, I have this visceral anger toward him and disgust and fear right now that I honestly don't know what to do with. And one of our longtime listeners, Rachel, said on Twitter a few minutes ago, I'm running low on grace, guys. And and look, me too. I think all we can do is ask ourselves to hold on and to give ourselves some grace because this is a nightmare unfolding before our eyes. And I fear, Sarah, that you're right, that it is only going to get worse. Yeah, I'm not sure that our families are going to be okay. I mean, I'm not saying that we don't have resources and privilege and a certain amount of protection. But for the first time, I'm not sure that we're going to be okay. I can't honestly say that I think my family or families like me will just glide until election day. I don't, for a lot of reasons, I could not have foreseen this. You know, it's just like we were saying at the beginning of this year, just about the election. We're terrible at telling the future. And what does feel right to me is that this is not the bottom of this presidency. And that the bottom will affect everyone. Including me, including my children. You know, those of us with that type of resources and protection and safety are going to start having to ask ourselves really hard questions about what of that we're willing to sacrifice. Because, you know, we all look back on the civil rights movement and the freedom riders and the people who put their bodies at lunch counters. And we say to ourselves, well, I would do that. And I'm 
becoming increasingly convinced we're going to get a chance to find out. I think it's important for us to share with you what we recorded earlier today, because certainly the president of the United States, right in this moment, has an enormous amount of responsibility in what's going on. And also, people are putting themselves at risk in the streets right now over hundreds of years of problems. And it is true in my mind that the most important thing this country can do in the next few months is ensure that we have a new president next year. Mm -hmm. And it is also true that we could have the most wonderful president we have ever had next year and still have black men shot by police officers and still have unbelievable amounts of racial injustice. We've seen it. We know it's true. And so it is hard to think about anything other than Donald Trump and be assured that's what he wants. Mm -hmm. And also, we have to think about things other than Donald Trump. And so we're going to go back to the episode that we recorded for you earlier today. We're going to continue thinking about this and trying to discern the best ways that we can use our voices here and our voices as citizens in our communities, and we invite you to do the same. And we'll all just keep thinking about this and getting through this together. This is Sarah and Beth. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics, the home of grace-filled political conversations. everyone. We are really grateful that you have joined us for today's episode of Pantsuit Politics at a seriously difficult time in our country. We are going to talk about that in our first segment, recognizing that the guidance is shifting on COVID-19, that that shifting guidance is even more relevant as so many Americans are participating in protests and other large gatherings right now, we brought back Michelle Becker. And Michelle is the person who we've been talking with about coronavirus um, for several weeks now. She researched coronavirus before it was a thing that we all knew about. So she's going to help us think through the risks of that. Before we get started, we want to welcome Emily Neasley to our executive producer team. Emily has been a Patreon supporter for a long time. We are so grateful for her and to her for joining us here. And Emily welcome. Thank you. So in this first segment, we want to spend some time talking about um, the state of America. I don't really know how else to describe it. Specifically, we want to talk about what has happened in Minneapolis over the past few days and then what has spread across America. We put out a call on social media for your experiences participating in marches and just the breadth of I'm in Seattle. I'm in this little town you've never heard of in Oklahoma. I'm in deep Alabama. I'm in New England. It's just it's it's really breathtaking how many Americans are marching in the streets to protest the murder of George Floyd and the ongoing racial injustice in this country. So let's start with the developments in Minneapolis over the last few days. We have an arrest of the officer who put his knee on George Floyd's neck, killing him. We have a third-degree murder charge of that officer. 
We still do not have charges against the three other officers that stood by as this happened, but the Minneapolis police chief, really remarkably in this world, Mm -hmm. said that he believes those officers are complicit and that there is a process that that will have to go through, but he fired them because someone should have said something and no one did. And that is a big deal that he said that. Yeah. I know that's not enough. It's not even close to being enough. It shouldn't be a big deal. Uh, and I think it's also important to recognize that, that that is a giant step forward and such a credit to the activism that has been done around every police killing that that police chief came out and made that declaration. You know, I think we see lots of police chiefs across the country sort of breaking the silence in a way they never have before. And I think there is this really difficult balance between saying this situation is better and it is still not fixed. This is quicker than we've ever seen a police officer charged in this area and honestly in most other areas of the country, and it was still not fast enough. You know, and I think that's going to be a theme throughout this work we have to do in America, right? I mean, today is, as we are recording, is the 100th anniversary of the race massacre in Tulsa, Oklahoma. It is a shockingly disturbing, horrific attack of racial violence, the most violent, the most deadly in our nation's history. And in some ways, you can read that story and think, oh, my God, it sounds like a different universe. And then in some ways, you can read that story and think, it's all connected, right? And I think that that is going to that is true over and over and over again as we deal with racial injustice in this country, right? It's so tempting to say, well, it's not it's not 1968. It's not. That's true. And also <laughs> in many ways it still is. And I think that's what's that's what that tension and that struggle that you see in conversations, and you you hear in people's voices this need to say, oh, look how far we've come. And also, look how much further we have left to go. And I think you see that specifically even in how they're treating these police officers. Yeah, because the ultimate justice is not in how individual officers are held accountable. That is important, and it needs to be done correctly and swiftly and transparently. And also, the goal here is not to have a better playbook for how we Mm -hmm. hold officers accountable once they've killed someone. It is that we don't have police officers killing people, and and that's an obvious point. But it is easy to get lost in the details of these individual issues. It's easy to get lost in kind of—and this happens on social media so fast where you say, look, this police officer killed this person. And someone says, but did you look at second five? I see something in second five that makes me feel a little differently about this or that raises a question for me. You know, we just have to stop that. Get out of here. Because there is a mountain of evidence in front of us now. And if these protests that have taken place all over the country this weekend don't convince you that we have a problem, then Mm -hmm. I humbly submit that there's never going to be evidence that convinces you that we have a problem. When police officers look directly into cameras held by members of the media and fired rubber bullets Mm -hmm. at them, we have a problem. Well, and it's like, you know, we get consumed with 
did they wait too long to arrest this officer? Or we get consumed with, wow, they arrested and charged this officer. Something, you know, which was a big deal 10 years ago, five years ago, still is a big year today. And we forget that even with that progress, the reality is, charging or no, police officers almost never are convicted (laughs) of these crimes because of the incredibly racist and problematic standard of proof. And so, you know, I think that that it's just it's like every little moment, every little section, every decision inflection we want to turn into proof of a problem or proof of a solution. And that's not going to work with the individual officers in this case. It's not going to work with even in the behavior of individual protesters or police officers all over this country. I mean, I think it's like you said, like you, it's almost like you have to see the forest for the trees. What we have is thousands of Americans across the entire United States taking to the streets and saying, this is unacceptable. And that is, I mean, I feel like that needs to be our guiding light. I I feel like it's such this weird balance and it's this weird like paradox in that we need people on the ground. We wouldn't be paying attention, um, especially in the last few years, I think, because of the power of the telephone and the camera filming it. And so it's not us having to take in witness testimony. It's literally we can all watch what happened. And still, like you said, there's still those second five people. But anyway, I mean, so we need that and you need that in protests and you need to see those videos of police officers aiming at journalists and you need to see the videos of police officers acting brutally. You also need to see the police officers who are participating in the protest. And you also need to see protesters who see, I mean, some of the most powerful videos I see are the the protesters who see someone acting violently, sweep them up and turn them over to the police. They're like, uh-uh, no. Get out of here with that. We're not doing that right here. But it's like, so we need all that, all those eyes on the ground. And also a single video is not the end of the any conversation. It's not, oh, see, ha, aha, they're looters or aha, they're brutalizers. Like it's, it, it can't be that. It's, it's one piece of data. And like you said, this, this huge issue that thousands of people in cities I never would have expected to be on the list, including my own, raising their voices and saying, Black Lives Matter, and this has got to stop. I think there is this tension for all of us um, in that there is no charging decision and no sentence for a police officer at the conclusion of a fair and just process that will make up for the fact that that police officer mm-hmm. decided to be judge, jury, and executioner of someone over a suspected forgery. Mm-hmm. There is no, there is no adequate remedy for that. Just like there is no adequate remedy for slavery and for the Jim Crow period and the Tulsa massacre and the way that we have written our criminal laws to ensure that just being Black in America is a a faster way to get yourself incarcerated than being white in America. There are so many things that there is no way to make our Black brothers and sisters whole. There just isn't. 
for the damage that's been inflicted. And at the same time, there are lots of things that can be done to improve this in the future. And there is no time like the present to do those things. There is no time. We've been talking about how COVID-19 has brought all the blocks down and we have Mm -hmm. a chance to rebuild differently. And we have that chance to rebuild differently without the tragedy of multiple Black lives being stolen and the outrage flowing from that. But we really have it now, right? If we don't do Mm -hmm. something now, when are we going to do it? And it is. It's one block at a time. You know, Sarah is so good at making us think about racist policies. You can see so many of those at work when you think about how policing is conducted, how police are armed, how curfews are imposed, how people are held and you know, extorted for bail money, how the absence of the ability to pay bail stacks the deck against a defendant as soon as they are arrested. Mm -hmm. You know, so many little pieces can be moved to dramatic results, and we need to move all of them and at the same time recognize, you know, I've heard a lot of white people in my life say, well, it'll never be good enough. Well, you're damn right it'll never be good enough. It will never Mm -hmm. bring back people who have lost their lives. It will never restore all of the the damage, generational trauma that has been inflicted here. And and yet we should still try. Yeah. I think that's really hard. I keep, you know, I've brought this moment up a million times. (sighs) That moment in Mrs. America where Gloria Steinem says, how long do we get people to adapt to change? And I think about, you know, the powder keg that is America right now with COVID-19 and with the economic toll of the pandemic and now with the tragic deaths of Ahmed Aubrey and Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and the just the explosion of grief and rage that these sort of three intersections has brought forth in America And I, you know, I hear it in people's voices and white people's voices. And let me say right now, I am talking to white people who want to be good white allies. I think there is an important psychological need. I felt it myself to look around when I was marching through the streets of Paducah and to think, oh my God, like, this is wonderful. This is powerful. This is progress. I've never seen this many people at something about racial justice in Paducah's history. I have never seen this many people occupy an entire street. I have never seen this many people proudly proclaim Black Lives Matter in my town. You know, I think there is, you can look and you can be inspired by the fact that Ibram X. Kendi's book is sold out on Amazon and that people are using language and amplifying Black voices in a way they never have before. I I think that that is okay. I think it's okay to say, wow, this feels different and that is good. But you cannot stop there. And I think that's really hard for people. And I think it either becomes, you know, oh, I, I can't say anything seems 
encouraging or that's bad, but I can't be silent. But I'm afraid if I say this, it's going to sound like it's insensitive. There's this paralyzing um, psychological response I'm hearing from a lot of my friends. Like, I'm just afraid I'll do the wrong thing. My white friends, I'll do the wrong thing. I don't want to make it worse. I care. I want to make a difference. But they're like paralyzed. And, you know, with any sort of perfection, paralyzation, done is better than perfect. We are just going to have to start moving like we did across the streets of America over the weekend. And we were going to get it wrong. And we're going to be insensitive sometimes. And we're going to make mistakes like Beth and I do all the time on this podcast. But let us testify that it is worth it. And you will get defensive and you will get your feelings hurt. And you'll realize how much you don't know. I had the most profound experience marching on the streets of Paducah this weekend. You know, I I go out of my way on the streets to make eye contact particularly with young Black men, and to convey to them that I'm not afraid of you. It felt like an important thing I could do. And this weekend when I was watching, walking next to a young Black man, and he looked at me and I thought, oh my God, I've got it backwards. He's afraid of me. And he has every right to be. And it breaks my heart to think that I've moved through the world without realizing that I'm a threat to people. I'm a threat. Because if I call the police or I scream, or I act afraid, that is a type of power that they have every right to be afraid of. Those moments are important, and they are painful, and we're just going to have to keep moving through them and learning and screwing up together and centering other voices and elevating other voices and admitting when we got something wrong. And also taking hope from the fact that more people are willing to do that. And I know it's hard, and I know it's exhausting. But what other choice do we have? What other choice do we have? The streets are filling up with people that want a different way. And it's going to be really hard, difficult work. But it that we will not see completed in any of our lifetimes. But I think it's worth it, and I don't know how you could turn away from that work. We've talked a lot here about how um, structural racism and patriarchy hurt everybody. And I think the more that I listen and learn and read that our whole lens, especially as white women, from where that I'm going to get something wrong perspective comes from is a good example of how it hurts everybody. I have gotten so many things wrong in my lifetime about race, and I have never had a Black person tell me that I am canceled to them. I have been corrected, but I have not been canceled. That whole sense of you make a mistake and you're done, that's white patriarchal culture. That is Mm -hmm. not what we are being called to by activists from the Black community. That's my perspective. I've never Mm -hmm. had someone in that community tell me, you're wrong, so we're done. There is a spirit of generosity. It is a different, you know, we are being called out of these power structures that do that to people. And putting on a different hat about it is challenging. But God, what a welcome challenge to be invited Mm -hmm. into learning 
to be asked to relinquish that kind of control that makes you feel like everything lives or dies by what you tweet. You know, we like the meanest people that I have experienced when you get something wrong about race are other white people. Mm -hmm. And I have started to learn that those other white people are doing that from a place of insecurity and a whole bunch of stuff that's not about me and my learning. And so, you know, we got a lot of questions. I posted on Instagram that I had talked with my daughters about the protests. And we got a lot of messages like, oh, I just don't know what words to use. I want to do this. I'm having a hard time. Well, I don't have any magic language for you, but I want to tell you that if you just be a mom or a dad and have a conversation about this, you are not going to get it wrong in a damaging way. What you will get wrong is not talking about it, you know, and trying to protect them from it and being weird about it. But we make a lot of things as white people extremely complex that are pretty simple. And if you use the language of how we love our neighbors and how it's wrong to kill people and Sometimes people do things that they think are good and they still have a bad ending. You you got this conversation and it's not just one talk, right? It's it's a lifetime of being honest with your kids about what's happening in the world. But I think that a lot of that fear that is so suffocating to to white women in particular, we have to recognize is is not what our the people that we're trying to be allies to it is not what they would want for us. Well, and let me just follow that up with a little bit of tough love. And it is with so much love. Some of that is fear of conflict and just good girl syndrome, right? You know, I think that there is an aspect of performative social justice that feeds the good girl in a lot of us. And you have to watch out for that. And I think there's a lot of silence when it comes to social justice that feeds the good girl in us, that doesn't want conflict, that doesn't want to make people uncomfortable. And I think, you know, for me, what I've really tried to do is there are, you know, really good female groups of white women in my life where I don't, it's not a public performance, but I can push the conversation in those groups, in those conversations, so that it's not performative, but I'm really trying to, you know, ask the questions I have, see where my friends are, have those really important conversations, even if there's some conflict, without it being that, that everybody pat me on the back for having the right hashtag. Because I do think, like, that's not particularly helpful. We all have to watch out for that on ourselves. Because when we're doing something hard and something we know is, especially as women, something that's hard and filled with conflict in our society, and I don't even think it's just women. Everybody wants a little pat on the back. Good good job doing something hard, (laughs) you know? And I just think, like, it's not not that doesn't make you a bad person. I think that's a sort of a normal thing. Um, Everybody wants the praise for doing the hard work. I get it. I get it. But it's, you know, there's a really great post we'll put in the show notes where this woman was just like, just every time ask, why am I posting it? Is it about me? Am I posting this because it's about me? Because I want credit, uh, because I want the label of the instigator, because I want like just constantly asking, like, why am I doing this? 
Why am I ordering this book? Is it because I want the book to sit on my bookshelf or because I want the book to challenge me, right? I mean, I think that's just you have to constantly be questioning yourself. And I know that's difficult. That's really hard. It's it's hard. And sometimes you're not going to like the answer. I don't like the answer often. But I think it's in a really important part of of doing this work and making sure that you are actually taking action and not just pontificating. I say that as a po- as a podcaster who <laughs> pontificates <laughs> as my job. But, you know, I think that that just that self-awareness is really important. I think that's right. I would shorthand that as don't try to get an A for being an ally. Mm-hmm. Try to contribute to a better world and try to raise people who will contribute to a better world. And, you know, again, returning to the talking with kids, to me, that is just about raising good human beings. You are aware of what's happening in the world and how they fit into it. To the conversation with kids, too, I, you know, I had another experience. I don't know how many times I have to learn this, that I think history is such a good way to give you and your kids something to talk about. So Griffin and I had a conversation about the riots and Martin Luther King and how this has happened before. And he said, well, of course, they, people were mad when he died because he was a hero. And I said, it's really important for you to understand that was not the reputation he had at the time among white people. He was not he, there was no national holiday. He was not a national hero. People felt like he was co- he were so many parts of the country, especially our part of the country, felt like he was just causing problems. And he was like, really? I'm like, yeah, really? Because when you are pushing back on a power system, um, you don't usually get a ribbon for it. You know, and we were just kind of talking through that. And it's just so every time I'm always struck by like the narrative in his head, especially about how we got here, has some really big holes in it. And I think it's just really easy when talking to kids, even older kids, to think that they have all that context for the civil rights movement or um, even, you know, some of the stuff that happened in the 90s. And they just don't. And I think that's a really good way to work through some of the narratives and let them feel out the sort of the value systems or the lessons you maybe want them to understand without being so explicit about it. And I think it's, you know, it's just like talking to kids about sex. Like if you make it this one big performance of a conversation where you're all Mm -hmm. nervous about it, it's going to go really poorly. If you're constantly talking about it, then your kids are going to draw really interesting connections. When I told Jane about the protests over the weekend, she said, that reminds me of us talking about Hong Kong. Yes, Mm -hmm. that's exactly it, Jane. Yes. People are asking for freedom from a government that has overstepped its authority. You got it. Yep. So as to this whole conversation about violence and uh, rioting versus protesting and God help us, Antifa and the president and all of it, you know, there's not a lot to say about this that hasn't already been said by someone with a lot more expertise than me. Here's what I keep thinking about, and I know that you have problems with the West Wing, which I respect, but there's such a good episode. (laughs) Just don't think it Um, ages well. That's it. That's my whole problem. er Early on with the West Wing, there's an episode called A Proportionate Response. An American plane carrying the president's doctor, among others, gets shot down by a foreign nation. And this brand new president goes to the situation room and they present him with his options for retaliation. And it's kind of like, well, they shot down our plane and so we'll take out their oil field and they expect that and they'll rebuild it. And and he is so angry 
about this process and how it works. And he talks about like, oh, so we do this and then they do that. And then a year later, we do it all again. And he's like, that's unacceptable to me. I want to like rain down with the full fury of the United States announcing that you don't ever do this. And they say, really, you want to start a war? And there's just this conversation. And and at the end, he decides to do the proportionate response as the military defines it. But then he says, like, I don't know what the hell we're doing here. And that is how a lot of this conversation strikes me. It's almost like we have people from the safety of their suburban couches, which is where I sit too, trying Mm -hmm. to analyze what a proportionate response from the Black community would be or from any community would be when a police officer unjustly murders someone in the street. What kind of conversation is that? That is a Mm -hmm. road to nowhere. That's why we keep doing it over and over again. We have, a, we have an unjustified officer killing of a black man. We have protest and outrage. Then it all kind of dies down. We have some superficial, inadequate charging of the officer, a trial that usually results, as you said earlier, in acquittal. And then we wait for it to happen again. That's, that's why this keeps bubbling up. So whatever tactics you think are okay, that is just beside the point entirely. You know, it's how do we get out of this cycle? And I think the reason people are risking their lives in the middle of a pandemic to across the nation say enough is because fundamentally, we are a nation where we are supposed to be governed only by consent and people mm-hmm. are saying, I do not consent to be governed this way anymore. Yeah. And there's nothing more American than that if you really believe that we are a country founded on ideals, not on commerce. I mean, I think a couple things that really bother me about the conversation. There is not one type of riot. There is not one reason somebody riots or loots or enters a, a building or burns it down. And so, picking, like I said, picking one video of the police officers marching with the protesters and saying, see police, or showing one officer firing into a journalist and saying, see police. Like, it's just, we're talking about a multi-city, thousands and thousands of Americans participating as police officers, as protesters, as clergy, as nurses, you name it. Like, there's not going to be one thing we can all look to and be like, aha, this is the answer. This is the reason. This is the problem. So that part of the, the way people do that really bugs me. And I saw, you know, in Paducah, our protest was at five o'clock. It was still very bright outside. Um, We walked uh, about a mile, turned around, walked back. Uh, There were still protesters in the street, but then they dispersed, I think, by about 630. But then there were people, and I would say predominantly younger people, who you could feel the, this isn't over for me. Like I, like the, the, Peaceful protesting down, even blocking the street, doing all this was not a full exercise of the energy that they felt. And so there was driving around town, you know, so often with Paducah, because we are smaller, you can sort of like see these energy currents more clearly. And so you could see that like it wasn't good enough. Uh, They went downtown and then you then they went to the mall. There were some windows broken. And I just thought like. I can imagine that some of this is what's happening after dark in cities across the street, across the country. 
this sort of idea of like, I'm just not, I have not said all I have to say, or I have not exercised this energy because the energy is not just about the murder of George Floyd. This is energy built over hundreds of years. And so, and I think that there are people exploiting it. I think there are people who it it is an almost type of economic argument. I read this really interesting article. We'll put the link in Slate about the Baltimore riots um, back in 2015. And they were saying in the 60s, uh, they saw that the stores who sold on credit were the more popular victims of riots at the time. It said in one widely published account, a mother told her son, don't grab the groceries, grab the book. And the book was the record of the debts in the grocery store. And I think you hear that in the in the sort of anger at Target and AutoZone and these companies that come into areas where people have very few economic options. They um, profit from the economy of that, of those people in that region and don't do anything to change the status quo. So I think that there, the sort of the rage expressed at businesses is understandable and also, of course, not to be condoned. I mean, that video of the three generations of black men discussing what works, what doesn't, I hear you, that just the, the visceral emotion of does it work? Does violence work? Does it not? And there's not an easy answer to that either. And I think just all this complexity of it's not good and bad and and there's not an easy solution. The problem is multifaceted. It has gone on for generations. Like it's just and we're all feeling the weight of facing that for the first time in such a way. And it is it's really, really heavy. But man, if we don't if we don't face that, that we don't have an answer and we don't fully understand the problem and we've been the problem fully and completely, I don't know how we ever even start to take baby steps forward. And I think you you hear all that complexity in these conversations around rioting and looting. And I I'm going off a lot here, but I have one more thing to say, which is I think the other big issue with exactly what you're talking about with the criticisms of the way people riot, and I don't like to, you know, point to memes, but I've seen a lot of Colin Kaepernick memes, and I don't think that's an accident. You know, the people who are criticizing this type of protesting spent months, months going after Colin Kaepernick for a simple, peaceful form of protest. And the hypocrisy is on full display at this point. And I don't think it's lost on anybody. I agree with that. I saw um, a post from, and it was, I just happened to see it. I've taken quite a step back from my personal social media. But I saw a post from someone that we knew at college um, whose husband is a police officer. And she was writing about how this was normally his day off, but he had been called in to serve throughout the evening over the weekend because of protests happening. And she was fearful. And this woman has the biggest heart, and her husband does too. I've met him a couple times in school. And I thought, man, I really feel for her position. I can't imagine what it would be like to see someone who I love going out into this as a police officer. And I just want to say again that, like, to me, this isn't the police are the worst. 
It is kind of like the conversation we've had here over time about the military. Very often, our service members are trained for armed conflict and deployed Mm. to do social service work, where we have troops who have AK-47s and bottled water that they're passing out in a location. We are bringing the wrong tools for the problems that exist so often. And so we don't have to say every police officer is a monster because that is certainly not true. We can also recognize that police officers in different communities have been trained for armed combat instead of community policing. We can recognize that there are police officers who, for a moment, stood in real solidarity with protesters over the weekend and hours later reverted into an armed conflict stance. And sometimes that was probably needed, and most of the time it probably wasn't. And we can recognize that people with the best of attention, the best of intentions, and the best hearts are going out into a situation that scares them. And they're going out into that situation at a time where nobody's been out. And so everybody is on edge and under a different form of stress than we even know how to articulate. And so I think it is well past time to discuss what we actually need from police officers in different communities, how we hire and train police officers, whether we need police officers as we have historically understood them, or if there is something different that our communities require. And we can talk about all that with the utmost respect for people like our friend's husband, who are really going out and trying to do the best job that they can. So, This is not our first conversation about this topic. It will not be our last conversation about this topic. Um, We could talk about individual situations and videos and protests and responses to protests for the rest of the week, 24-7. And some of that needs to be done. And we will all continue to do that, you know, off the mic and in our personal lives And hopefully on the streets as we continue to call out for racial justice. Next up, we are going to share our interview with Michelle Becker because there is still a global pandemic and there's still lots of information. And in particular, Michelle is so good at articulating how to make that risk assessment um, and what information you need to do that safely. So we hope that this conversation with her is really helpful to all of you. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. If 
you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and Jean has you covered. We've talked about Olive and Jean's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are gonna last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and June also has press-ons if you want. What I love though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors. And I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsu for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash pantsy. Michelle, thank you so much for coming back in. Am I wrong about this? It just feels harder today than it did even a few weeks ago. It definitely feels heavier. Yes. I think it's just because we keep getting more information. And so there's just then there's that much more information to sort through. Not to mention that some of the information and recommendations are in conflict with previous information <laughs> recommendation, which just oh, it makes it so muddy. We're so glad you're here to help us sort it out, Michelle. Absolutely. And as we get into our questions, different states have different guidelines. Different localities have different guidelines. We are here to talk to you about the best science available, right? But not to counsel anyone on the specific requirements of where they live. Right. So let's first start with like, can we get back with our people? If you know someone and you miss them and you know that they've been doing a good job of staying at home and using masks when they're out and washing their hands till the skin comes off, are you two okay to hang out together? You know, we talked about this and the idea of risk and assumption of risk, risk analysis. And none of these things are going to be absolutes. So it's not going to be 100% yes or 100% no. And I think as we're learning more about transmission and about how the virus, how long it can stay infectious on surfaces and how it 
hangs in the air and things like that, you'll have a little bit more information. And I would say in general, if you've been careful when you're out or limiting your trips, um, careful with who you come in contact with, and especially when it's over that 14-day period, then it's highly unlikely that you are sick, asymptomatic, transmitting, and same potentially for the person, people that you want to interact with. And so, you know, when you're looking at that risk assessment, I would say you're probably, the longer the time goes on, you're probably making that transition into less risk with that time frame just continuing. Um, and I think the idea of what you would do when you're together, whether you're hugging or kissing or if it's shaking hands or sitting apart or wearing masks or not wearing masks or sharing food, you know what each of those, I mean, I think we have more information about what each of those actions has attached to it. And so you can make some decisions about that. And you can stay on the side of, we really feel comfortable with what we've been doing and what you've been doing. And maybe each of us are not at high risk for serious side effects. And so we're going to shake hands and give each other a hug or we're going to share a meal and share I don't know, utensils or something and go to that extreme. Or you can say, no, we're still a little bit concerned about this. Um, and so we're going to wear masks when we're together or stay a certain amount of distance apart, um, but sit in the same room or sit on the patio together and have a conversation or go have a cup of coffee or something like that. So it's still that whole range of, super conservative, in the, not in a political sense, but in the sense of assuming risk and then going to the other extreme and like, no, we're pretty comfortable with what that risk entails. And I think even though there are guidelines that are different in different parts of the country and different states and different even localities, one of the things that you can do is if you have a way to just keep an eye on the numbers in your community, because part of the risk is also linked to how much virus is in the community. Because if you think about it, if nobody in the community is currently sick, there's no, there's, the virus doesn't survive on surfaces that long. So it's mm -hmm. not like somebody coughed yesterday and you go to the store tomorrow and pick up that virus from that surface or from something hanging around in the air. So if there's a lot of people out, that all are asymptomatic and you're starting to see those test cases or the, when they're doing testing that those case numbers are going up or hospitalizations are going up, you can correlate that with there's more virus in the community. So there's a higher chance that when you go through a drive-thru or when you get a cup of coffee or you walk past somebody at the store or a Target, that you are having a higher possibility of exposure. So not only looking at your own activity, but kind of keeping an eye of what's going on in your smaller community, your city, your county, will also give you a really good sense of what that overall risk might be. Well, and I feel like, correct me if I'm wrong, Michelle, but I'm going to be, I'll be honest and vulnerable here on Pansy Politics and say, I have been doing a lot of socializing outside. It seems like the science says that the coronavirus is very difficult to... Uh, get from being outside unless you're like, I don't know, singing in each other's faces over a prolonged period of time, which I have no immediate plans to do. So, you know, talking about that risk assessment, especially with no seeming high propensity of spread in my area, seems like 
outside is increasingly safe. What do you think about that? I do. And I think part of that has to do with air circulation. So the when you speak or cough or, you know, and I think singing has been an interesting thing that's been in the news about what happens in a church choir or if you're at a space where people are doing a choir practice or people are singing together. And that idea basically comes with if you do have virus and you are replicating virus, it does come out when you speak and when you breathe. And that actually has to do with the force of your breath. And so if you're just talking and you're, you know, a good couple feet away from the people that you're talking to, if you're producing virus, most of that virus is going to fall down to the ground. Not all of it, but a lot of it. And so the farther you are away and you're talking in a normal tone, then it's highly unlikely that that's even going to be picked up by anybody else. Because the most effective way, the way that I think about it is that if it's on a surface, if a virus is on a surface or once it's released from a person, that virus immediately starts the process of inactivation or decay. But once it gets in a person, then it's on the process of making more virus. So I think a lot more about people when I think about surfaces, but the how you talk or sing, and it's one of the things like people talk about, they are seeing, if you look at people breathing when they're exercising or running or biking, that there's a lot more forceful exhalation, and that more forceful exhalation is going to push out more virus if you have virus. So sitting across from a person at a table having a cup of coffee is going to be way less problematic if either one of you is actually sick or actually um, expelling the virus, then if somebody runs past you or you're shouting at somebody or you're singing or you cough or sneeze. Now, it doesn't look like the, this virus, like sneezing is not symptomatic, but it also is allergy season. <laughs> you, could, <laughs> you could be, you know, have an infection um, and even though that's not causing you to sneeze, if you did sneeze, you would expel the virus. So, you know, I think of all of those activities, sitting across from somebody and having a conversation over a cup of coffee is probably the least risky. Especially if you're outside. Right, especially if you're outside. Because then you're not dealing with air circulation. And if you've got good filtration and you know where the air circulation so there are some commercial buildings and things that they're looking at. Um, how they can control some of that air circulation. But yes, outside, you have not having air blow in your face that somebody else is just sucked in from another room or something like that. So yes, outside, talking calmly. <laughs> well, I mean, there is a component of knowing thyself, and I will also be vulnerable, and it will not come as a surprise to anyone who regularly listens to this podcast that I'm a bit of a loud talker. And I have tried to be like aware of that. I probably am putting out more <laughs> droplets <laughs> Certainly than Beth, than other more quiet talkers. I know myself. I'm aware of that. So that's why I wear a mask, especially when I'm telling stories, because I'm a loud talker and I'm positive, singing or not, I'm probably putting more out there on average. I was going to say, but if you're not sick, then you're not putting out virus. So it is, it's both sides. May I ask you to follow that thread a little bit more about fitness? A lot of listeners know that I teach yoga. I read our requirements in Kentucky as telling me that I need to wear a mask to instruct a yoga class right now. And that makes sense to me. And I'm perfectly comfortable doing that. Does that make sense to you that masks for instructors, at least, or even participants in a fitness class would be helpful given that 
labored breathing that occurs? I would say, you know, you're looking at yoga or Pilates or things that aren't uh, aerobic. And I think if you're the instructor and you're moving in the class and moving and you're coming, you know, in closer contact with people, then I would say that, yes, it makes sense for the instructors to wear the mask. Um, If you are a participant, you kind of come in and you are distanced from other people and it's not something where most of the time you're out of breath. I would say it's probably more on the safe side for participants to not have to wear masks. I mean, ideally, if everybody's wearing a mask, you are really limiting. If you are infectious, if you are infected and you're putting out virus, you're really limiting what you're putting into the environment if you're wearing a mask. So the safest for all of that is for everybody to wear a mask. But if you had to split it, I would say that the ones that aren't aerobic, if you do a calmer yoga practice or something like Pilates where people are spread out, I don't think it would be as risky for the participants to wear a mask. But if you were running on a treadmill next to somebody else running on a treadmill, then I would say, or if you're in like a spin class, you're next to people like that, then I would say I wouldn't feel comfortable in that setting unless everybody would mask. Thank you. That really helps. Will you talk to us a little bit about this whole opening up idea, especially in places where we don't see the kind of uh, consistent downward trend in cases that we were told a couple of months ago were necessary in order for opening up to happen again. Do you think we should be worried about that or should we trust that the thinking is evolving in a scientifically sound way? I mean, I don't know what resources that people who are making those decisions necessarily are looking at. I do think we have more and more information that's coming out a lot of it hard won, unfortunately, about how to manage the disease. And I have been trying to keep up with that a little bit. And I think the management of people with more severe disease is getting better and better. And I would say the last time I looked, I didn't see any hospital systems, even in New York and New Jersey, I didn't see any hospital systems in the U.S. that were at max capacity. So I do think that if that's one of the components that people are taking into account is if we did open up and let people go out and we did have another round of infections that resulted in some percentage of more serious disease, do we have the hospital capacity to be able to appropriately care for those people? And I would say from what I've seen as far as the numbers, it looks like the answer to that right now is yes. It doesn't, I can't say that it's going to stay that way forever. Um, And I think that the idea of, again, masking and social distancing is still really important to be able to move around and limit that spread as much as possible. But I do think with a better understanding of the disease and the disease course and when and how to intervene, and those, I think that information has been forthcoming. And I think there's a lot of people working on disseminating that information within the medical community as well. I do think that makes sense at some level. Um, And when you start incorporating economic and just social and mental health components as well, I do think you've got to take those pieces into account as well. And I think there's probably some level of balance of all of those factors that says that, yes, I think some level of opening up and being able to do that um, is appropriate. It's hard when... You don't know that the people you are next to in the grocery store, if they're abiding by some of those same principles, but again, keeping your distance and you wearing a mask 
and what you have control over will help to mitigate those factors. And I think people are, they're starting to do elective surgeries and elective procedures, and hopefully people are also feeling comfortable to go back to the doctors and to the hospital if there's another emergency, because I'm also seeing, you know, an attempt to account for illnesses and honestly death that have happened because people are afraid to go to the hospital. Mm-hmm. And that, even though that's not a direct disease or a direct viral pandemic death or cause of illness, it is a correlate because people's fear has been so high. And, and so I do think the idea is we have a better, not perfect, we don't have a, you know, a, a home run drug, we don't have a vaccine yet, but as far as the management of the disease, it does seem to get better and better. So I think that that is definitely a layer of helping with the fear and then dealing with being able to have all of the normal things that would normally happen in a doctor's office or in a hospital start to be taken care of a little bit better also. Okay. Real talk, speaking of grocery stores, can we stop wiping down all our packages when we get back from the grocery store? This whole decontamination routine. Yeah. I, I don't think when we worked in the lab, we had to fight really hard to actually keep virus intact. I don't, at least the viruses that we worked with that were not this particular virus, but other coronaviruses, they are not very stable in the environment. And so, like I said, as soon as they're outside of a person, outside of a body or a cell, they start the process of degradation. And if you have, you know, if you have a million viruses, that process, they're not all going to just, it's not like they're all intact and infectious for one, two, or three hours and they all die or they all fall apart at the same time and they all become uninfectious. It's that haptic gradual process that says you start with a million and by a certain amount of time you can't detect any infectious virus but in that whole time frame in between it's slowly going down so you know if you've got a package package delivered something picked up from the grocery store I would say that again the most important piece of that transmission whether it is a doorknob or a delivery package or a bag of apples to the grocery store, um, that most important step of transmission is still hands to face, hands to mouth, hands to nose, hands to eyes. So if you are bringing stuff in from the grocery store and washing your hands, you break that cycle of transmission right there. So you either break it by cleaning off everything that is, you know, that you've brought into the house, or you just break it by washing your hands. So I don't think that you have to go overboard. I think more evidence is the amount of virus that's in the environment isn't a huge, huge, heavy load of virus that takes days and days to decay and fall apart. It's small amounts, and they're scattered, and they're very it's more random or rare than we would potentially anticipate if everybody was sick and everybody was everything. A random event. So I do think you can probably dial that back a little. <laughs> but I, I think the important piece of all of that is that when you're out, when you're interacting with other people, when you're bringing something into the house, if you take care of it, put it away, do whatever you have to do, and then wash your hands, then you're not, once you're in your house and your hands are clean, then you don't have to worry so much about, oh, don't touch your face. That relates to a question we got from a listener about how you actually become infected. She's been reading a blog um, from a scientist about how there's a combination of exposure and time that results in infection. 
Could you talk a little bit about how that actually happens and the different kinds of scenarios people find themselves in as they as they get exposed to virus? So like we were just talking about, the you get infected when virus <clears throat> is in contact with the mucous membranes that are in your uh, mouth, your nose, or your, your throat, and your potentially even your eyes. The eyes are a very, very low possibility, but they still, it still is there. It's still the mucous membrane in your eyes, so rubbing your eyes counts. But the most direct way to get infected is to have somebody who is expelling virus through a cough or talking or yelling or running or whatever, um, and then you breathe it directly in. Uh, there's a range of what that takes to actually initiate an infection and what for your body to start producing virus and for your immune system to react to it. Now, the most infectious virus that we know about is measles. So with measles, there seems to be evidence that you can actually have a measles infection when you are exposed and comes into your body, one particle of virus. Now, for SARS, the coronaviruses, it, it does not seem to be that infectious. And so you do have kind of a a viral load that you have to be exposed to. But again, it's not like one means you don't get infected and 10 all of a sudden you're infected. It might mm -hmm. be, you know, 10 for some person, 100 for somebody else. It might be 100 vir viral particles come into one specific location in your mouth or throat or nose, or you have a couple over a couple of hours. It's that it is just this range of process and it's like we're trying to define and understand and look at what happens in nature. So it is, it is a somewhat random process with the virus interacting with cells to be able to initiate an infection. And under an ideal circumstance, that might mean just one cell has to get infected, maybe for everything to work and for that process to continue, you have to have multiple cells infected. It might be that certain cells, um, it just doesn't support a productive infection. So there's a whole range of things that can happen. But to get infected, obviously, you have to get exposed to a certain number of particles that are infectious. They have to be, be able to get into the cells um, that can support that infection. And then usually it has to be able to spread. And somewhere in that process, then your immune system kicks in um, to be able to respond to that. And in this case, um, it does look like most of the time that people really get sick is actually more immune-mediated damage. So people will ha get infected with the virus, um, make more virus, which is when they can pass it off to somebody else, and then that'll go down. And then the illness really gets severe as the immune system is kicking in and trying to clear that virus. But it usually lasts for the people that get really sick after the virus is pretty cleared, pretty much cleared, and it really is your body's systems potentially going overboard and then before it ramps down as it would normally ramp down after an infection is cleared. So it's going to be a little bit different for each person, and it's also going to be a little bit random for things hitting the right place at the right time in the right quantity. Okay, so now that we've talked about infections, we have some questions about whether you can be reinfected. And I have lots of questions about the tests that show that, either antibodies test or antigen test, which I do not understand the difference between those two. Okay. 
So the initial data that looked like you might be able to be reinfected quickly after you were sick um, or after you had cleared an infection seems to be more an issue of poor testing or poor testing results or poor test sample taking than a true reinfection. So the idea is that most people probably get infected, make lots of virus, and then stop making virus. And then that's like what I was saying, that your immune system kicks in. The test, there's, there's different kinds of tests. So the test that most people are getting now where they're putting a swab up the back of your nose, that's based on the idea that the virus seems to replicate most in the back of your nose, in the nasopharyngeal uh, cavity. And to have that test done correctly, um, it should hurt. So if you have had that test done and it didn't make you tear up, they probably didn't get the swab back in the right place. Mm. That if you were at peak viral titer, like if you're shedding virus like gangbusters, you can probably swab the front of your nose and still get enough virus um, material to turn the test positive. But if you have either, if you're ramping up on that peak or ramping down and you're not really getting a good sample in the back of your nose, then the test could show negative, even though you actually have virus. Interesting. Now the test, that you're doing that on the testing side after the sample's taken, even if they get it up to the back of the nose, what they're actually looking for is viral genetic material. So the viral, the genetic material of this virus is RNA, which is found in your cells too. In the, in the nucleus, there's DNA and then RNA is the, um, we call it messenger RNA. And it's usually what goes into the cytoplasm and makes protein. This virus doesn't have DNA, it only has RNA. And so what they're doing in that test is they're looking for specific sequences of uh, RNA that say you have, been, you have virus RNA in your system. That does not mean that you have infectious virus because like, like the virus breaks down in the environment, it also breaks down in your body. And so you can shed viral material from degraded viruses that could turn up positive saying you have viral RNA in your system long potentially after you actually have, are producing infectious virus. Just because you have viral RNA, that is a good indicator that you have been exposed to this particular virus. For you to, for somebody to say that you are actually shedding infectious virus, there's another really, it takes a long time, it takes about a week to do a test, and in this case, it's being done in a BSL-3 laboratory, and it's very labor and cost-intensive. So basically, nobody's doing that test unless you're in some kind of a study or they're looking for some additional information. So they're looking in that nasopharyngeal swab. They're looking for viral RNA. So again, if the swab isn't already in the back of your throat or the back of your nose, um, and that means that you've been exposed, but it doesn't necessarily mean you're shedding infectious virus. So that is... They're trying to test people who should be actively, either actively exposed and potentially actively shedding virus. And so that, would, that test, if you're positive, it says those things are happening. Then you have an antibody test, which is a test of the immune system having reacted to this virus. There are four common cold coronaviruses. And so one of the big questions with the antibody test is, is it specific? Are you able to differentiate between people having an immune reaction to SARS-CoV-2, 
which causes COVID-19? Or are you picking up antibodies that might cause one of these other four, uh, might be caused from being infected by one of the four common cold viruses that are also coronaviruses in the same family? So they're working on trying to tease that apart. And most of the time, you'll see questions about specificity. So that testing, if you've had an immune response to it, and that test should say it, it'll ramp up about within about two weeks of when you've been infected, but should stay positive for a longer period of time. So you have a longer window to be able to check and see if people have been exposed and have had an, an infection that they have it's been significant enough that people have um, developed an immune response to it. So that's two different things. You're looking at active infection with the nasopharyngeal swabs in the back of your nose, looking for viral RNA. The second test is looking to see if you have, it's called seroconverted, um, and you now have antibodies that are specific for SARS-CoV-2. When you talk about an antigen or an antibody test, an antigen is a term that's used in immunology that basically means anything that your body is exposed to where it generates an immune response. That is an infection, an infectious agent. An antigen can be a bacteria, it can be a virus, but it also can be pollen. If your body, if you have allergies, that's considered an antigen because your body, whether it should or whether you'd like it to or not, it makes an immune reaction to it. So, and that's what they, I'm going to interrupt you because that's what they use for pregnancy too, right? Well, yes. And okay. so, yeah, actually it is because the pregnancy test, they're looking for, um, they actually have an antibody in the pregnancy test that reacts with HCG. And if you have a certain level of it, then you get your bands. So that is, it's an antibody test, that, that, but the antibodies in the kit, they're looking for that protein that you are producing when you're pregnant. In that sense, the antigen is the, what reacts to that antibody, but they're looking for the antigen in that case. In the, in the case of the virus, they're looking, they're considering the virus an antigen, but it's a general term. It doesn't have to be a, an infectious agent. Um, it's just something that whether it's appropriate or inappropriate, you're, you have an immune reaction to it or something makes an antibody to it. And that's just your body recognizing that it's something that shouldn't be there or it doesn't think it should be there and it'll make an antibody to it. I think I get it. The antigen test is more sensitive than an antibody test, right? But that also means you can get false positives. You can get false positives in both tests. Um, you can get false negatives in both tests. That's part of the um, trying to figure out the specificity of it and the sensitivity of it. Um, okay. the, the window for when you probably are getting a positive test for the antigen or the viral RNA test, which is the nasopharyngeal swab, is probably shorter because it's looking for viral infection. But you also okay. have some people who shed virus or viral material for a long time. So in those initial cases where it looked like they were having negative tests and then testing positive again, what it does look like is they weren't really getting reinfected. They just had a series of negative tests and then the, the antibody test, I mean the antigen test, the viral RNA test is really sensitive. And so if you just got a swab in the right place, it would turn positive again. So it, uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that that was an actual reinfection. And in some cases with people, if they, if they have an immune deficiency in some ways, um, it may mean that the virus was tamped down but not completely eliminated and they might have had a, re, a you know, resurgence in some way or a different part of their body or something like that that 
to cause that to turn positive again. I mean, what I'm hearing from you, Michelle, is we do not need to pin all our hopes on antibody or antigen tests. I think they're informative, but you have to take everything with a grain of salt because it depends on how well they're, especially with the antigen, the viral RNA um, swab, it depends on how well it was administered initially. Um, But the antibody tests should be more durable. So you should have a longer window to you have been exposed to this at some point and you've made antibodies to it. Can I ask you about kids? Because it seems to me that the key to a more normal economic climate, in addition to a vaccine, you know, well, in advance of a vaccine, is is stabilizing childcare and school. And, you know, I don't know how to really help my children understand the risk calculus that we talked about at the beginning in terms of thinking through um, what your habits have been and whether that means we can hug or high five or not. And speaking of loud talkers, you know, if you've spent any time with like a four-year-old. So I just would love to know what you think are the most critical things we can be doing as parents right now in terms of educating our kids and what are the big outstanding questions that you think need to be answered before we could have some resumption of childcare schooling normalcy? Yeah, and that there are some big unanswered questions with that. So the general idea, which has held mostly true, is that kids don't seem to have a severe reaction or severe disease with this. And there is an exception to that that we're starting to see. And I think that's just because the case numbers are high enough. Um, in certain areas. The, the issue with that is that if kids can get infected and shed virus and not show it and not have any symptoms, that makes it a little harder because you wouldn't necessarily know. And if they're exposed to somebody else who is um, at risk, then that's harder to determine. So I think with kids, um, we do need to have a little bit better sense of do they just not get infected very much and they just don't shed virus? Like they're just not, their bodies don't have the right receptors very much. And so they just, it just kind of washes over them in a sense and they never really get infected or do they get infected, but they don't get sick and they could potentially just shed lots of virus. And that I think is one of the big questions that we don't really have an answer to. And I think that as, testing continues to expand if parents take their kids to be tested as well. Um, And I know it's not necessarily an uncomfortable or a comfortable test if they're doing the test correctly. Um, Then that information is really helpful to be able to say kids, you know, in a family situation, are they shedding virus or do they just really not get infected and not shed virus? So that's the biggest piece. And I think if the kids are getting infected and they're shedding a lot of virus, that's a really hard call because, you know, it's hard to get a kid to wear a mask or to stay distant. Um, I think it's encouraging in the sense that I don't feel like they're most of the time at much, as much at risk to get sick. But then if they can be carriers or vectors, you've got to take that into consideration too. So I think that's probably the biggest piece of that we don't know as far as going forward with that. The one caveat to that is um, you've probably been hearing about the Kawasaki-like disease that they're seeing in places with higher infection rates like New York and New Jersey. And there's some cases that have been seen in Europe as well. And 
that again seems to be um, something that we don't know exactly what, why some kids are seeing that and, once, and some kids aren't or being um, exhibiting those symptoms, but it does seem to be an immune-mediated response to a viral infection. So that's something to be aware of in listening to your kids when they say that they don't feel well or being aware of some of those symptoms. And again, it's a hard one because it's a syndrome, um, which is the term that the medical community throws at something when they don't have a cause effect and they don't really know exactly. And so there are some broad things that, um, you know, your kids are like, I don't, my stomach hurts or that are seen like nonspecific. But if you think that they've had an infection, it's something to be aware of and kind of keep your eye ear out for uh, if your kids are expressing discomfort at some level. Ideally, Hopefully, it would be that the kids don't really get kids don't really get infected, and so they're not really shedding virus. So they're not really a vector. So then, that opens up a lot of freedom with kids and childcare and school. But if kids are really getting infected, not getting sick, and they're shedding lots of virus, then it does put their caregivers and teachers at risk in a way that is potentially really difficult for a community to absorb, and that is hard. And I think that's the biggest piece of having a hard time making those decisions right now. There's so much out there on COVID-19. Are there certain resources that you find yourself checking that you think are accessible for people who are not virologists? I keep an eye on the Johns Hopkins dashboard, and they have great information and links that will also take you to other um, other places as well. The CDC and WHO are both you know, they are great resources um, overall, and they stay up to date as much as possible. There is, if people want to dig into the virology a little bit more about this virus and others, I, there's a podcast that I listen to um, that's called This Week in Virology or TWIV, and it is scientists, um, and it's a long one. It can go as long as two hours or over. Um, it usually gets put out about once a week, but they're doing more right now. But they're, they're having conversations ahead of it of that podcast is somebody who's worked in poliovirus research for most of his career and then he will have other scientists come on um, and immunologists and they will they dig into some of the details of the virology and can get pretty scientific but they do try to come out and make sure that they are talking on a more general level as well Um, and then I do a lot of the big journals that normally are behind a paywall are not right now so science nature cell they are science and nature are cross science uh, journals, and so they'll do everything from astronomy to microbiology, and they are doing coronavirus papers, and they are have been open up to public access for that. So there's a whole range of things from really deep scientific stuff to things that are a little bit more accessible. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies. So we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. 
and we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code Pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. I feel like we should do a whole one on vaccines. I feel like that's coming. There's so much stuff with the vaccines and there, there's so many different platforms right now. And uh, it requires a lot of understanding of the immunology to make sense of it too. But I think the thing, and maybe this is comforting at some level, I've been thinking a lot about 1918, the flu pandemic, um, and realizing that they had nothing. It was before yeah. the polio vaccine was developed. It was before we had antibiotics even to, to deal with um, secondary infections. And they, it was, I mean, it was horrible, but as a culture and a community and a country, we survived. survived. So and, you know, they, we, we went back to the basics that they had. They had masks and they had distancing. And mm-hmm. those are really effective techniques. And they are basic and it feels a little bit medieval in that sense, but they work. Yeah. They're not a hundred percent effective, but 
they work and they work don't it's not just for coronavirus they work for flu they work for cold viruses they work for other things too so that's just really really basic but we are going to have drugs that will work either to you know deal with the immune system overreacting and causing disease we will have vaccine or probably multiple vaccines that will do have different efficacies or durations so we will have things that are effective in fighting this. But in the meantime, while we're waiting, um, masks and distancing are really effective. Well, I think what's really disturbing to me is I have so many medical professionals in my life being like, well, they're rushing the vaccine process, so it's not going to be safe. And I'm like, I don't think that, I mean, they are doing it quickly, but it's not like they're skipping steps. And it's like, I tell my friend, I'm like, I don't want to a virologist fixing my broken arm. And I don't really want an orthopedist telling me whether he thinks I should get a vaccine or not. Those seem to be separate areas of expertise as far as I'm concerned. I will tell you that I've heard people who work in vaccines working really hard to be very cautious because they know that with the political climate, if if a vaccine is quote-unquote rushed and comes out and doesn't have, either isn't efficacious or causes problems, that it's going to set back not just this virus vaccine, but yep. all vaccines by a right. huge step. And so they're being very cautious, not just with this virus vaccine, but also with trying to educate and communicate. Um, they're, they're not skipping steps. They're doing some steps in parallel that normally they would right. not do in parallel. Um, but, you know, trying hard. And the Moderna vaccine that is already in clinical trials right now is, it is probably the safest platform, but the biggest question is whether it's going to work. So it has the least chance of causing harm, but it's an unproven platform. So there's also a chance that it won't work. The Mm -hmm. initial data that just came out is pretty encouraging. Um, And the other reason is it's actually one of the easiest ones to manufacture. So the idea that you could get a billion doses out of this in a short period of time is actually possible, whereas depending on how the other vaccines are actually manufactured, it could take a lot longer to get that many doses. Interesting. Well, I felt good about my pediatrician last night. I asked her, I said, what is your thoughts on the vaccine? And she was like, are you kidding me? My friend in Lexington is in like phase one. She got picked for the phase one of trial. And I called her up and asked if she needed volunteers. And she said, no, we're full for phase one. And she was like, well, I went on the first list for phase two. I was like, oh, I love you so much. Absolutely. Well, I told my friend, I said, I just think it looks, you know, it's just like you said, it's assessing risk. And to me, the risk of an immune response to the vaccine is much smaller than the risk of an immune response to the actual virus. That's true. But we also have, before we understood a little bit more about vaccines, there are a couple of vaccines that were put out with, we think we understand how this works. And once they got into the real world, they actually caused more problems than they solved. So this is one of the reasons that they're really, really cautious about it. There's a scientist at the NIH Vaccine Center who has worked for most of his career on a vaccine against RSV. And the RSV vaccine is a horrible story because it was put out in the early 80s, early mid 80s. And the kids that got the vaccine, if they got the virus, they actually had worse disease. Mm. which is, you know, the worst thing you want to have happen. Um, And it took, they pulled it off the market, you know, super quickly, but it's taken almost 30 years for them to understand why that happens. Now we know why, 
And that's a great other tool in the arsenal. And it's actually one of the pieces of that information is actually getting built into the Moderna mRNA vaccine, which is just fascinating. But um, now they can build a new RSV vaccine. But that is another piece that even though it's not as publicly acknowledged as vaccines cause autism, which is ridiculous, but um, that is another piece of the vaccine history that's really hard. You've got to know if it is antibodies that protect people from being sick or if it, because you can have an antibody response and then you have a cell-mediated response, which involves T-cells. And there's two different pathways that go down that route as well. And one is more, usually more protective. The second T-cell pathway is involved in a lot of um, allergy responses. So you want to stay away from that one, if at all possible. So there's a lot of information that you don't know in the lab or with animals, um, and you really don't know until you get into a live human population setting. So much to know and understand. It's hard. We're, that's why we're so glad you came and joined us, Michelle. It's so helpful. Absolutely. I'm glad to. We're so grateful for Michelle for coming back to share her expertise with us. Didn't feel right to us today to have a light, breezy conversation about what's what we're thinking about outside of politics. And the truth is right now, it's not a lot. Um, So we want to leave you today first by letting you know that we have a bunch of resources in our show notes. Lots of you ask us for what book can I read? What article can I read? So you can look at our show notes, go to pantsuitpoliticsshow.com to find those. And feel free in the comments to add resources that have been helpful to you. This community is so good at sharing that kind of information, and we hope you'll continue to do that. So we wanted to leave you with a prayer. We're going to use one of the prayer from Terry Stokes. If you do not follow prayers from Terry, T-E-R-R-Y, on Instagram, get on it because they are so good. We're going to share his prayer for a protest. O judge of the world to whom vengeance belongs, who casts down the mighty from their thrones and lifts up the lowly, take up our cause. Rise up for us against the wicked, the powers of evil whose unconscionable injustices have brought us to and past our breaking point. Hold up our arms as we raise signs, amplify our voices as we chant and sing refrains of righteousness, protect us from danger, and make the force of our will stronger than the inertia of the status quo. Let God arise and let God's enemies be scattered by the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, who reigns with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God, here and now. Amen. Take care of yourselves and each other. We know that many of you are hurting. I had a text message with a friend, and he said, everyone who cares about justice is hurting right now. And so we know that that is all of you in one way or another. We appreciate you sharing your time and your thoughts and your learnings and your curiosity and your questions and your pushback with us. Please continue to do that. We'll be here with you on Friday. Until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Pantsu Politics is produced by Dylan Garvin and Studio D Production. Elise Knapp is our managing editor. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. Our show is listener-supported. Our executive producers are Allison Luzader, Allie Edwards, Amy Whited, Barry Kaufman, David McWilliams, Emily Neasley, Janice Elliott, Jared Minson, Joshua Allen, Martha Branitsky, Sarah Ralph, Tiffany Hasler, Timothy Miller, and Tracy Putoff. To support Pantsuit Politics and receive lots of bonus features, visit patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics.
You can connect with us on our website, pantsuitpoliticsshow.com, sign up for our weekly emails, and follow us on Instagram.